Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. <laughs> I need to, like, prepare for these. I always forget that you're going to do something adorable. No, not always. I mean, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to keep you on your toes. That's, that's fair. That's Some, fair. Sometimes I showcase my, my, my uh, lack of singing skill, and other times I just go right into my sultry after dark voice <laughs> the patrons can hear whenever they <laughs> join patreon this is true at certain levels <laughs> so uh as y'all may uh remember last week we covered the whiz live today we're gonna cover the whiz movie the version i have not the seen. version you have not seen so uh are you ready to continue this aussian journey <laughs> Aussian uh, is the correct word. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think I'm ready. I I may have regrets later, or I may, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, so first, I'm gonna just do a really quick review on uh the Broadway version of The Wiz. I know that uh you allegedly got told about it yes or last time. So we'll see. We'll see if you remember this. Uh, so the Broadway version was written by Charlie Smalls. Yeah, Charlie Smalls, I can say words, who did the music, and William F. Brown, who did the book. It was one of the shows that was credited with mainstreaming the idea of all-black musicals in the minds of white theatergoers. It was this, Raisin, and Pearly that paved the way for shows like Dreamgirls and Bubbling Brown Sugar, and he's glassing over again. Okay, we'll go back to shows that we've covered. So, so The Color Purple, is, is that a movie or a musical? Start, so first it was a book, then it was a movie, and then it was a musical in the early 2000s. So, is the this... musical Raisin what happens when you leave The Color Purple out in the sun too long? Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> the uh, groans of dozens of listeners echoed in unison throughout the multiverse. Uh, man, that's sad if we have just dozens of listeners throughout the entire multiverse. <laughs> Tens of dozens of listeners. We have more than that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but Raisin is a musical based on the play Raisin in the Sun that we haven't covered yet. So, <laughs> there we go. That's my short, short, sweet thing, <laughs> so that I don't go into a long, like, and this was the history of this thing. What were we talking about again? Welcome to Tangent the Podcast. <laughs> I'm Warren. I get K-Sidetracked. Yes, he does. So, like we said last week, The Wiz was an unexpected hit, which meant movie i am a little bit surprised that they went movie considering that a couple of other movie musicals that came before this one did not do so well and may have helped kill the movie musical for a little while hmm. um that would be camelot hello dolly and i'm trying to remember the third one it'll come to me later we'll probably cover it and then you'll be like oh i see why <laughs> So, originally the movie was supposed to star Stephanie Mills, who you may remember was the first Dorothy on Broadway for The Wiz. 
In fact, this film was being produced by Motown Productions, which is now DePoss Entertainment, which was founded by Barry Gordon of Motown Records. We'll probably do an episode on him later. Okay. So, Gordy really wanted Stephanie Mills to be in it. Keep in mind, though, that I did not mention Stephanie Mills when we were talking about the movie previously, like going, oh, Michael Jackson's in it. I had only mentioned her being the original Dorothy and then returning to play Auntie M in the live version, and that is because of Diana Ross. The Diana Ross. Of the Supremes? Okay. The name I'm is... so glad that I worked these in, because this will help you. The name is super familiar, and I know if I saw a picture of her or heard something, I'd be like, Oh, that Diana Ross. Of course, any idiot knows who Diana Ross is. Well, Diana Ross heard about the project and was like, Stop in the name uh... of love. I want to be Dorothy. <laughs> and Barry Gordy was like, you're 33, Dorothy is a child, no. <laughs> so then Ross went around him to the executive producer of Universal Pictures, Rob Cohen, and was like, come see about me. And he was like, okay, yeah, if you're attached to it as the lead, then I'll produce it because people know you and they don't know this up-and-coming R&B singer Stephanie Mills. And Gordy was like, well... I really want to get this made, so if we hold on together, I know our dreams of a Wiz movie will never die, and gave the go-ahead to Ross instead of Mills. Mistake number one. <laughs> Bing! So then our original director, John Badham, was like, ain't no way she's young enough. Ain't no way she fits this part. Ain't no way I'm doing this. Go get you another director. Okay, so what he really said was, Ross is a wonderful singer. She's a terrific actress and a great dancer, but she's not this character. She is not the six-year-old little girl in Dor Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> So they had Universal on hand because of Diana Ross, and you've, Universal was so excited for this that they didn't set a budget at first. Mistake number two. Bing! Mistake number three Bing! comes here. <laughs> and this is the first name that I am pretty sure you will recognize. Will or won't? Will. Michael Jackson? No. Oh. <laughs> he was one of the good things. The script... Do I need to get your screaming pillow? Yeah, maybe. Oh, no, no. I the, thought I'd left this in February. The script was written by Joel Schumacher. What? Yes. Joel that Schumacher Joel wrote Schumacher. it? Joel Schumacher. You mean there's not enough black writers to write the black movie? <laughs> What the f- <laughs> Really? <laughs> it gets worse. So, he and Ross were both influenced by Werner Erhard's, Erhard's seminar training, which is a thing we'll cover later because I didn't want to get too into it and get sidetracked, but basically it influences the script a lot. And Rob Cohen put it this way. The movie was becoming an Estian, that's short for... Erhard Seminars Training uh, fable 
full of est buzzwords about knowing who you are and sharing and all that. I hated the script a lot, <laughs> but it was <laughs> but it was hard to argue with Ross because she was recognizing in the script all of the stuff that she had worked out in est seminars. Another part of this mistake is that while Schumacher had seen the play, he went, that's nice, and didn't use the script that was already there. <laughs> so that's when he went ahead and wrote his own? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. <laughs> like I said last week, saying that it's good isn't accurate, but I still like this show a lot. So, uh, funny... <laughs> funny uh sidebar about that uh when i was with uh my dad last week helping him move his girlfriend in mm-hmm. we were just talking and stuff in the delivery truck and uh he's asking how our podcast is going as mentioning that we're going to be doing this one coming up next <laughs> and he said that was one of the only movies he ever walked out on <laughs> one of the other ones was tommy <laughs> and he happened to mention that he was probably too young and i think he was still uh still in the church at that point so i think it was probably a little too for tommy i can see that for the whiz we'll get to it for the whiz so uh let's see where was i oh i was on to the director now the director is sydney lumet doesn't ring a bell okay well we'll talk about him a little later too but um oh, the director you just oh the writer was schumacher writer was schumacher this is before schumacher started directing okay so i'll say but the director has the power to change anything they want so couldn't they've looked at schumacher's script and been like now this is garbage not when you have diana ross on board she's a pretty powerful woman oh and that's right and she loved this she was like she loved this script and was the reason that universal picked this up okay so Sidney lumet was brought in to direct and fun fact his mother-in-law at the time was cast as Glinda in this film. Cool. I'm not telling you who she is. You'll find out later. Uh, Don't ask who it is. I love you have faith in me. Like, you'll recognize this person. I'm pretty sure you will. I'll probably recognize the face and go, who is that? (laughs) So LeMay decided that he wanted this film to be so unique that it would be an experience nobody has ever witnessed before. Dude, which don't to do be that! Fair. Don't, don't! You have a successful Broadway show! Take that successful Broadway show, put it to film for people to enjoy! Don't go, hold my beer, I got this! Like, I mean, to be fair... To be fair... It is something people hadn't seen before. It isn't, it isn't always a good thing. So, he was asked how to compare it to the 1939 MGM film, and he said, There's nothing to be gained from that film other than to make certain we didn't use anything from it. They made a brilliant movie, and even though our concept is different, they're Kansas, we're New York, they're white, we're black, and the score and books are totally different. We wanted to make sure that we never overlapped in any area. By the way, Lumet was not black. Just because your mother-in-law's black huh. doesn't huh. mean you are. Huh. Huh. Uh. <laughs> so now on to the person who kind of saves this movie from being like complete. This is the person who saves this movie from a universal like every critic hated its score. And of course, we're talking about Michael motherfucking Jackson. <laughs> Jamon. 
This is Michael Jackson hot off of the Jackson 5. So still black. Still black. And he, right off of the Jackson 5 leaving Motown Records. And he was cast as the Scarecrow. He's 19 years old at the time. Okay, so is this, this is before Thriller, right? Oh, yes. And I'm getting to that in a sec. Sorry. So, um... He was he was one of the first thoughts for the role from uh, the perspective of Rob Cohen and Barry Gordon, whereas Lou May was like, he's a Vegas act, I want Jimmy Walker from Good Times. Then they saw him when he was brought in for a tryout, and even though Joe Jackson wasn't thrilled about letting his son into this role and away from the Jackson 5. Screw you, Joe. Jackson was cast, and for the first time ever was on his own in New York. Fun fact, and this is where we're getting to with Thriller, it was during the production of this film that the groundwork for Jackson's solar career was made. Ah. Yep. Nice. And I want to say it was Quincy Jones who helped make that happen, uh, who's also working on this movie. Another fun fact, Stan Winston of Jurassic Park special effects fame did the prosthetics for the Scarecrow. Nice. No expenses were spared. <laughs> spared no expense. Yes, spared no expense. God, I even... God. Anyway. We even watched those We recently. even watched those recently, and I watched those when they first came out. It's, a little... You're, it's okay, Kay. You're a dinosaur nerd, not an old English actor nerd. That's true. I am uh, old English actors, and my brain just sort of goes into static after a little while. But then with dinosaurs, it's like... Oh, boy! <laughs> let me recall every fact I know crystal clear. Yeah, let me tell you everything about Ceratosaurus. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Sidetracked. This, this was filmed in New York with the World Trade Center standing in as the Emerald City, Astroland and Coney Island being where the Tin Man's hanging out, and the crumbling New York State Pavilion from the World Fair as Munchkin Land. Oh, so, like, the whole world of Oz is in New York. Yes. Oh, interesting. Oz is set in New York. And, like, it's 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 one of those things where, like, it's really obvious it's New York, but they still try to make it a little Ozian. So it's not like, oh, Dorothy just suddenly went to New York. No, it's still called Oz. But anyway. I mean, that would also be an interesting adventure, a six-year-old girl by herself in New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Remember how I said they spared no expense? Did they spare an expense? At the time, this was the most expensive movie musical. And they should have spared some expenses. Because <laughs> it cost $24 million. Want to know how much it made? Uh, what year was this done again? 78. It's 1978 in $24 million. Uh, it made half that. It it made just over half at thirteen point six million. Ooh. Critics panned the fuck out of this show and were like, "What is this grown ass woman doing playing Dorothy?" <laughs> also, there were some folks calling her neurotic and unattractive, which I'm like, hmm, hmm. I would not call Diana Ross unattractive, like ever. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> 
This movie was also the death knell for Hollywood-backed films with all black casts until coming in America in 1988. So, yeah. You know, I hate that kind of crap where it's like, oh, this film did bad. That means no more black films. Meanwhile, whenever a a movie with a predominantly white cast fails, they're just like, eh, we'll make another one. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, it it drives me nuts, and I could go on a tangent about that and how uh, I'm still bitter that... Princess and the Frog didn't do as well, and that it it just uh uh mm, mm, mm. not gonna not gonna gripe not gonna gripe anyway. <sighs> Jackson did win the show an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor, but this is the only award that the film won, <laughs> according to one review. And this might have been something that your dad went through. The Wiz was too scary for children and too silly for adults. <laughs> Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow in the 1939 film, said, The Wiz is overblown and will never have the universal appeal that the classic MGM musical has attained. And then Kay, who has an opinion that matters more than these folks, says, Fuck all y'all, I love this movie and it didn't scare me as a kid. <laughs> then again, you also did not get scared by Jurassic Park. That's true. I was this little kid just sitting there in the theater like, oh boy, dinosaur, haha, the T-Rex ate the lawyer. Good job, T-Rex. Yeah. Go get him, raptors. (laughs) Haha, the Dilophosaurus didn't look like that, and it was a lot taller. Newman would have been dead already. Oh, I don't even remember. I love you. I don't even remember Newman's actor's actual name. I I just call him Newman. Yeah, I don't either. But... Yeah, so that's my little uh, introduction to the Wiz movie. Are you prepared? Um, no. Have but... you dropped the acid yet? No. <laughs> where, where, did, where did I... I think I took both of ours just for... Just, oh. I don't... Okay. Whoa, it's starting to kick in. Your computer's turning into a thousand snakes. Well, I guess we're going to go uh, watch a thousand snakes... Uh, do, I don't know. That didn't work. I'm gonna watch a thousand snakes perform Wizard of Oz. <laughs> that, I guess that would imply that the computer's performing Wizard of Oz. <laughs> We're gonna watch all of Michael Jackson's characters perform the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Captain EO is Dorothy. <laughs> like the, the, it'll be similar to, uh, my coma dream last episode. Yeah, right? yeah, we still need to, uh, take you to the doctor over that one, but, you know... Well, I mean, I, I talked to somebody online and they said it doesn't do any more... I, sh- I didn't do any more damage to my brain than a weekend of binge drinking or five minutes on cell phone. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, if the internet said... Wait, was it goop? Maybe. Your silence scares me. <laughs> All right, well... I just really want one of those vagina candles. <laughs> I got you a jade egg. Oh, God, let's go before I regret this. (laughs) Let's go. Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah. Today, we would like to thank our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu. And our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci, Reagan, and Taylor Brandt. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. We truly appreciate it. 
Dear Diary, it's been three months since I became famous. Since the day my dreams came true, since my life changed forever. That means three months to think about the perils of stardom, the pitfalls of celebrity, and how my life just went straight to hell. None of that happened because being famous is like the greatest thing ever. She was an unknown actress way back in season one. Now she's really famous and her life is much more fun. She's walking the red carpet, even got a household name. Here's hoping she won't screw it up and go back to being lame. Welcome to season two of the Carlotta Botox Chronicles. The Carlotta Botox Chronicles returns January 20, 2020. This whole fame thing is going to be a total no-brainer. And now, the lights are going down and the music's starting back up, so let's head back to the second act of our show. All right, Warren. Shall we whiz this motherfucker up? I'm ready to let it flow. <laughs> so what did you think about that uh, that movie, The Wiz? The 1978 production of The Wiz. I actually liked it. Um, it it's, it's really... It's I knew really... I chose correct... I knew I chose correctly. <laughs> what do you mean? I chose you. Oh! So I chose correctly. Yay! Uh, yeah, I, I did like it. It was very different and mm-hmm. very weird in some parts. Um, but it hit all the, you know, the keynotes of The Wizard of Oz. The story's all there. Uh, there were some interesting costume choices and some interesting art direction. Uh, <laughs> I definitely don't agree with every choice that was made. Yeah. But overall, I don't think that it's as I I don't think that it should have bombed as big as it did. I honestly I agree because I think about shows that are around the same time frame and well, no, the other show that I was going to compare it to that would be a movie musical that was in the 70s that has achieved a cult status would be Rocky Horror, but that actually didn't do well when it was first released either. But this, I would watch over and over. Rocky Horror, not so much. <laughs> yeah. The the biggest criticism, honestly, that I would give this show is I didn't really care for it being set in New York. Uh-huh. Like, you know, with her starting out in New York or whatever and getting whisked away to Oz. Yeah. Sure, but with... I, I just didn't... It did, It felt out of place. It didn't feel like she was in this other world. Mm-hmm. It actually reminded me quite a bit of uh, Godspell. Yeah. Because they're running around this very vacant New York mm-hmm. and kind of going to some locales, but doing their, their whimsy versus, like, just being in the world and mm-hmm. existing as people in the Big Apple. Yeah. Speaking of the Big Apple. Okay, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to the fucking Big Apple. Speaking of bad art direction. So, my notes (laughs) begin. Thanksgiving morning, New York, 1978, and the streets are filled with cocaine. (laughs) 
Or that's... maybe it's snow, <laughs> snow cane, coast snow. All I know is that this weather blows. Uh, God damn there's it. white stuff all over the streets of New York. I mean, it is 1978 in New York. Yeah. And I think it's like at the height of the cocaine time. It was about the starts of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. KK knows more about illicit drug drugs in their history than I do from your wild years before what you, we met. What you saying? I <laughs> I think I said it. I think I said plenty. <laughs> just kidding. Ah! She tickled me. Uh, just like every <laughs> Thanksgiving for what? Oh, okay. Woo! Let's see. <laughs> I gotta read this note real quick because I this may be a bad choice. Let's see. So this note doesn't really make sense, and I I will try to uh, correct it after I read it. Just like every Thanksgiving for white people, Aunt M starts to sing while everyone else is trying to sing. See, this is why I stopped going to my family's Thanksgiving. All of the singing was just too much for me. Let a man eat his turkey and pass out in peace. So... So with that scene, uh, that note is garbage, and I apologize. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, maybe it was too much snow cane. I don't know. But we, we see it's Thanksgiving, and it shows the inside of Dorothy's aunt's apartment. And they're pulling the turkey out of the oven. They're cutting up some ham, and they're just getting everything ready for Thanksgiving. There's people mingling about, just socializing, and then everybody sits down to the table. And then Aunt M just kind of comes over to one of her nieces, not Dorothy. Like normally, this song... it's her daughter. Oh, it's her daughter. Okay, mm -hmm. but normally she'd be singing this to to Dorothy, um, in the act in the in the other version. But she comes over to her daughter and just basically grabs her head and puts it to her bosom and just starts. Singing the song that Aunt M normally there's like it was the all be such a weird direction. It, it really was a weird direction, and everybody else is kind of like smiling but looking around like, "When we gonna eat?" Like, I don't. Why are you singing, Aunt M? And like, I will say though that the singing part with the Thanksgivings that I used to go to that was a tradition. We would just all be singing at the table. But you were all musically talented people. I remember going to one of those with you. The first year we were dating and them being like, nope, this white boy has to sing too. And I'm like, fantastic. I think I ended up singing like happy. No, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yes, you did. That's what I ended up singing. We have that on tape. Because they were like, you got to sing something. It's tradition. I'm like, tradition. This sucks. Um, But yeah. So you, you were happy to just sit and listen and yeah, absorb it. I wanted to then... just sit there and listen to all of these talented people sing. I didn't want to be put on the spot and be like, mm -hmm. now dance, white boy. It's reverse minstrel shows. Oh, like... Jesus Christ. <laughs> dance now, for our amusement. Now you know how it feels. Now I do know how Every it feels. single damn time that I go anywhere. And it's like, Kay, sing and dance for me. But I like it when you sing. I don't make you dance, but I make you sing. That's true. I do. I hold her down and I go, sing! Sing for me, my angel of music! Wrong show. Sing! <laughs> okay. 
Dorothy Ross can't take any more of the family singing. <laughs> and she goes into the kitchen to give it. Hold on. <laughs> yes. Dorothy Ross. Dorothy Ross. All right. Just wanted to make sure I heard that right. Yep. Dorothy Ross. Get used to it. Oh, God. Dorothy Ross can't take any more of the family singing, and she goes into the kitchen to get a jump on dessert. Dorothy Ross pulls out the cake, and when and uh, when we think she's about to scarf that bad boy down, <laughs> she instead takes the moment to have an existential crisis about how she doesn't know where she belongs and how she can't relate with all those happy people in the other room. Like, she, she does. She, like, breaks down in tears in the mm -hmm. kitchen about just... That's what it seemed like. Like, she's just having this existential crisis about life. I will say that Thanksgiving is one of those times that I get the most existential. So, <laughs> why am I here? Why am I about to consume an entire bird? <laughs> this was a dinosaur once. <laughs> this now just... I'm eating it. Yeah. Na Spared no expense. <laughs> Nature's got a sick sense of humor, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. One quick thing, though, about the whole Thanksgiving thing. I had forgotten to mention this earlier, but I want to say it's BET1 has shown this show for Thanksgiving a couple of times. Because technically you could consider this a Thanksgiving musical just because of that scene. In now, the same way that Die Hard is a Christmas see, movie. And we've, and we've been in arguments about this. It takes place during the holiday, but that's not the main focus. So therefore, it's not... A Thanksgiving or Christmas movie, it is just a movie that happens to take place in that time. Right? I don't know. I'd watch that. I'd watch Die Hard over Elf every year. I'd I'd watch this over Happy Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown, because that, that show's fucked up. And I like Peanuts, and that one's fucked up. That's the worst of the specials. Alright, back on track now. <laughs> To help alleviate Dorothy Ross's anxiety and ex existential dread about her life, Aunt Em decides to meddle in Dorothy's life, saying, Why don't you go teach high school instead of wiping the snot off those kindergartners' faces? <laughs> Aunt Em just can't let Dorothy enjoy the comfortable rut she's in, and Toto, having enough of Aunt Em's meddling in Dorothy's life, decides to bail and take his chances with the, with the blowstorm that's raging outside. The blowstorm? God damn it. So, yeah. So, okay, that summed up pretty well. So, like, mm -hmm. dinner's over, and uh, actually this line made me laugh where Aunt Em comes in the kitchen, she's like, these dishes ain't gonna wash themselves, and I'm looking at the pile of dishes, I'm like, those fuckers are already clean. Like, this is, mm -hmm. there's no dirty dishes in this, like, this scene. It's Everything's already clean, but then they go through the motions of, like, pretending to clean. Yeah. And uh, Aunt Em just keeps being like, oh, you thought about taking that new job? And she's like, oh, I thought about it, but no. She's like, oh, but you'll be with high schoolers and you'll get four years with those kids instead of just one with the kindergartners and it pays more and it'll take you out of your comfort. Just basically like trying to force her to do something new. And that's said by someone who obviously is not currently teaching. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, right? Because you love those little kids at first, and then by the end you're like, I'm so glad that you're going on to the next grade. <laughs> I will do anything to make sure you're not held back. <laughs> Dorothy Ross rushes out to retrieve the little bitch Toto. <laughs> Dorothy catches up to Toto, who is 
up to his belly in New York blow. Dorothy clutches Toto to her chest as she starts to feel the effects of the blow storm, and before she can attempt to seek shelter, she and Toto are attacked by a blow NATO. A cocaine tornado barreling down the street. And it's it's such a bad CGI moment. I mean, it's 1978, so you I, you know I don't know what to say about it. it. It's I think that that one is practical effects, but that doesn't help it. I don't think it was practical effects. That was definitely a fake tornado. Well, I mean, like they were doing because you can do practical effects to make fake tornadoes, but like it because CGI I don't oh, oh, think oh. was a thing no, at no, this I, point. I think I think I know what you mean. It was yeah, just, but it was very obviously a green oh, screen no, kind of thing. Oh no, it was very badly done it, it was it was bad practical effects is what it was i'm sure it was good for the time i mean remember most expensive movie ever made at the time musical yeah movie. but i think all their money went to a scene later <laughs> okay okay spared no expense <laughs> this is not jurassic park well, well, that's right, but the costume... Stan Winston. Yeah, okay. He worked on it. No, it's too... it, it works. You win this round, Kay. And probably all the rounds after. <laughs> the Blow NATO takes <laughs> takes us up Blow into NATO. space, where the cocaine goddess of the stars blows Dorothy out of the Blow NATO and sends her to Oz, which apparently has a ceiling as Dorothy crashes through it and lands in a... sand pit? In a playground with neon paint... And a very, very heavy creep factor. Uh, you, in a couple notes, you can tell me what this place is because I know you mentioned it and I don't remember what mm -hmm. it is. <laughs> Anyways, the first truly nightmare, the first true nightmare scene comes up as people who are painted on the walls peel themselves off the wall and proceed to swarm Dorothy in her glowing sandpit. Dorothy, who is super high on cocaine right now, screams in absolute terror as we think the graffiti people are about to horribly attack Dorothy. They instead congratulate her on murdering the evil witch of the painted playground. So, what the fuck is that place again? Um, it was the New York Pavilion from the World's Fair, and it was, like, crumbling and stuff. And You said, you said it was abandoned, right? Yeah. So I wonder if that graffiti is graffiti that was there and they just used it or what or if they painted graffiti for it spared no expense they probably did <laughs> but yeah because it's like this big concrete enclosed circle area with like slides and mm -hmm. a lot of other playground stuff and it looks very post-apocalyptic in a lot of ways that's the crux of this movie is post-apocalypse it did you know it really does like it it's like dorothy's wandering this wasteland mm -hmm. but it just happens to be new york city <laughs> but there's some parts of this like there whoa, was a period of time when new york city was not great there needs to be some renovation done there but um Dorothy Ross is confused, understandably, uh, but crushes Toto to her chest as the painted munchkins usher the good witch of the North, Miss One. Miss One alleviates Dorothy Ross's pent-up fear, but only momentarily before taking a number two on her wishes to go home, <laughs> saying she needs to flow on down to the Wiz to ask him for help to send her home. But not before all the munchkins, high on paint fumes, dance and hula hoop and flip and dash and dance about in a 
I don't really know what to call that. A dance scene, I guess, would probably be the best descriptor. I mean, it's a celebration. It's honestly more interesting than... We the represent one, yeah, the it's, lollipop It's a guild. lot more interesting than the Munchkin Land scene in the 1939 Oz. For sure, um, but even and that... And much more joyous, even though it's still creepy. It, there's joy from those characters. Yeah. The, the, the thing was, is at least in the other version, it's like bright and sunny. Yeah. And it's outside, and, and you have this feeling of warmth. In this version, I have this feeling of like impending dread like <laughs> like the, there's so many like it's so dark and just kind of depressing i mean the oz books aren't necessarily all fun and games okay see chop fight it's all fun and games until someone drops a house on you mm-hmm. or and... in this case the letter c <laughs> Yeah, the letter Z, that's right. I forgot to mention that. Like, when Dorothy crashes through the ceiling to enter Oz, the ceiling she crashes through has this big Z in the middle of, like, the dome. And that's the Z that, like, lands and crushes the witch mm-hmm. instead of a uh, a house. Yeah, it was, it was basically the emblem for Oz, which is the O and then a Z in the middle of it. That so, makes sense. touch number one from the book. Touch number two was uh, Miss... One slate, they actually had her with the slate as well, so... And also, like, whose idea was it to name her Miss One? Why was that... Big shrug. Why was that a decision? That was a bad decision, in my opinion. No, I agree. That one was one of those, like, why, though? They could have kept her at a pearl or something? Like, they, they do it a little bit playing, like, numbers games, basically, uh, with Dorothy... But even then, it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, it not it doesn't really work. Okay. I blame Joel Schumacher. <laughs> As Miss One sends Dorothy Ross on her way, telling her to take the yellow cab to the Wiz... The yellow cab, as as in sticking true to New York stereotypes, yep. opts to not pick up the black woman mm-hmm. and instead drives off, saying that it is off-duty. Yep. Leaving Dorothy Ross to wander the now-vacant munchkin land, singing about how she should not panic, everything will be alright, just as soon as she can get home. But in the meantime, she'll just have to wander the streets alone, singing into the darkness. Mm-hmm. That... That scene gave me a little bit of anxiety because I'm just like, this woman is alone on what just looks like a not very friendly part of New York. And I just kept being like, don't get mugged. Don't get mugged. You know don't what get attacked. gave me anxiety? That's where we first see that dude with the... Oh, 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 oh. Yes, 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 yes. I did not... <laughs> okay, okay. You can make comments about that, but don't say anything. Oh more. no, I'm not going to say anything more. Because I have going to say he. Uh, I have a note later. You have for a that note guy. later with him too, because yes. that's the first time that we see him is when she's wandering through uh, New Oz, York. So remember what Kay is talking about, listeners. I will have them elaborate uh, when it gets to that note. Dorothy Ross wanders the dark, singing her ballad of uh, confusion. The sun rises, and Dorothy finds her way to a junkyard, I think, with a cornfield in it, Mm -hmm. and Ronald McDonald's homeless cousin, Scarecrow, (laughs) Michael McJackson. (laughs) 
Dorothy watches as the crows are grubbing down on some sweet corn while mocking Mick Jackson over his dumb ideas like reading and getting down from his crucifix. The crows make Mick Jackson recite the crow rules. Crow commandments. The crow, thank you. The, the crow, crow commandments. Never forget the crow commandments. What are they, Kay? Can you, can you translate to English for the majority of our listeners? Those who know the Crow Commandments will understand. Kay forgot the Crow Commandments. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and the Crow Anthem, which Mick Jackson sings like a fucking god. Holy crap. It's been so long since I've heard MJ sing, I forgot why he's called the King of Pop. However, in this show, he is the jester of popcorn. <laughs> Dorothy is moved by Mick Jackson's plea for help and comes to his rescue, pulling him up from the crucifix and sicking her vicious hound on those no-good crows. After Dorothy and Toto chase away those pecker faces, she comes to Mick Jackson's side and helps him up. Mick Jackson takes a few moments to find his bones and muscles so that he can stand and walk. Dorothy gives some emotional reassurance, saying that he could that he could have gotten down off that crucifix anytime he wanted, but because he believed those nasty crows, he doubted himself. Come down off your cross. Yeah. <laughs> Mick Jackson laments over not coming to that conclusion himself. If only he had some gray matter in his head. Dorothy tries to reassure him that he's not stupid, but he shows her, in fact, that his head is stuffed with garbage. Oh, and Mick Jackson has like. Fortune cookies and shredded books stuffed in him, so he's literally full of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that is actually probably one of my ve very favorite bits throughout the entire show. Same. Is just how the Scarecrow will, he'll either like reach under his arm and pull out a strip of paper that's got a wise quote from, you know, a philosopher or a writer or somebody and... It's just such a great touch that he does yeah. like, multiple times throughout the show. And I think that's one of the things that people hated about it, because that's some of the Estian type stuff. I love, I love I that, liked though. it. I thought I, it was really I good. I thought that it worked for those scenes. Yeah, I mean... It... Specifically, those scenes. <laughs> and I would agree. And what's interesting, you were talking about the Estian stuff from the, uh, the intro part of the show. I did not see as much of that really like because I, mm -hmm. I was kind of looking for it mm -hmm. um with exception to scarecrow but his i don't know mj's scarecrow was such a good role his is my favorite my favorite portrayal of the scarecrow ever he he really <laughs> did a really good job yeah and just like reading those little bits of wisdom every time mm -hmm. they'd come across like a trial or a new challenge or something, yeah. you know, inconveniencing them. He would just read these little bits of wisdom and say, you know, who it's from. Yeah. And it was like, just, it was just really good. It was. I, I liked those. I, I like his scarecrow a lot. Dorothy Ross, Mick Jackson, and Toto ease on down the yellow brick road after being snubbed by two more racist taxi cabs. So... <laughs> So, like, after Dorothy uh, helps Mick Jackson down, they chase away the crows and helps him to his feet, and he's discovered he has bones and can walk now. She's like, well, why don't you come with me to the Wiz? He can get you a brain and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. and she's like, but I don't know where the yellow brick road is. And it was funny. He's like, initially, they're, like, heading back the way that Dorothy came initially, and there were two cabs this time. But then they both, like, boing, 
out of service and drive away before they yeah. can get into them. And then they start finding like little pieces of yellow brick. Yeah. And they're following the trails of these little pieces of yellow brick. And then they're finding whole yellow bricks. And then it just leads to the actual yellow brick road, which mm-hmm. it looks like it was just painted on the yeah on the existing New York, you know. <laughs> but it, I thought that that uh, I thought it was actually kind of an interesting touch. It, it really is. Like there there are things in this that I mean, yes, it feels dystopian and it feels post apocalyptic, but it does give you something extra that other versions don't of the Wizard of Oz. It it. The closest you get to that is Return to Oz, which you still need to see. So, yeah, I haven't seen it. It is its own flair, but it is a grittier, darker, more dystopian, more depressing flair, mm-hmm. which actually kind of works in its favor when it comes to the end. And then it like mm-hmm. sheds that desperation and despair and it's... it's yeah. More optimistic. That's how you do a gritty reboot or reimagining right. Is if you are taking something that was upbeat and you're making it gritty, you still need to have bits of that upbeatness. It's kind of why, like, I'm not as huge of a fan of these live-action Disney movies that kind of make everything darker and edgier because it's like, well, but you don't bring back some of the charm that was there. Yeah. With this, even though it's cheesy at times, it's it like that charm is a little cheesy at times. It's still good and it's still grounded in this weird reality that they've created for this version of Oz. <laughs> he feels this weird reality they've superimposed on the existing New York. Yeah. It yeah, it's 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 a mixed bag of it really is of things but which is why i feel like if you're just out of hand saying it sucks it's like well no parts of it do suck like there are things that are not good but you can't discount the good things in it yeah and that's definitely fair i don't think it it's fair to say that the movie sucks it's fair to say that the movie is strange mm-hmm. it's fair to say the movie's unusual it's, it's fair to say it's nightmare fuel it's fair to say that there are <laughs> weak parts and strong parts, mm-hmm. but it's not a bad movie. It's just different. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all those differences, just from my own mm-hmm. artistic filter. Yeah. Which, granted, with how not well-versed in the Wizard of Oz world I am, that's, you know, take it or mm-hmm. leave it. I You know, it's one of those things Um, I can really just say whether or not something resonated with me or yeah. it didn't. That's about all I can do. I think most of the fans of this outside of, uh, like, black people who grew up with this, most of the fans are Oz fans, like, of the books. From what I was just looking at online. So I'm kind of like, okay, that's who has made this into a cult classic. Is folks like me on both ways. That's fair. (laughs) Both ways. Giggity. <laughs> Dorothy and McJackson's... Dorothy and McJackson ease on down the road to an abandoned amusement park and a bronze tin man who is trapped under a fat ass of jilted... Fat... Chapped... 
trapped under the fat ass of a jilted lover. Dorothy and McJackson save the metal-ish man who curses the... (laughs) who curses the man who made him for making him so damn handsome, witty, and charming, but for not giving him a heart. Dorothy Ross tries to reassure bronzed Tin Man that everyone has a heart, and he's like, Bitch, are you still high from the blow, NATO? I do not have a heart. Dorothy looks inside his chest and sees it's empty. And so when, when they first come on down and they hear, like, I can't remember what it is they hear that first makes him go to the Tin Man, just like, oh, he's just... Help! Oh, yeah, he is. He is crying help. help. But like, he is crushed underneath like this statue of a really fat woman. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of his thing, he's talking about how like that's his fourth wife or something yeah. like that. And I don't remember why he was crushed underneath her. Like he made her angry or something, and so she sat on him. It's not. They don't really okay. explain that. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad I did not miss that's, something with that. That's another one of those choices that I was like, bruh? Yeah, that one definitely made me do a, you know, <laughs> curious dog head tilt. Yeah. Bronze Man gets caught up and sings about how he wishes he had a heart so he could know if what he feels is real or not. Excuse me. Then after that song, because it was so emotional, he rusted his mouth shut from his robot tears. Bronze Man's request for oil is answered, and Dorothy squirts all over his face and down his spine. The freshly lubricated Bronze Man sings again about how excited he is that he can dance now, I think? So, I'm amazed that you glossed over the wooden faces that came to life. That, I think it's because that didn't bother me as much as I think that you thought it would. So when the bronze... Meanwhile, your sister was just, ah! Yeah, that, yeah, that was funny. I think, the, I think the reaction from both of you is what was the funniest part to me. So when, when Bronze Man is first singing about how he doesn't have a heart and stuff like that, uh, there's like this, this, uh, uh, crap, what's the name of it? What's the name of those... What's the name of like when you have a picture engraved on a wall and... It's a form of stone... Oh, crap. Oh, no. What is it called? Crap. But yeah. 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 So this... I don't know if they're supposed to be muses or what, but these three women in close proximity to one another, and their heads are, like, touching. It's like this this uh, relief. That's what it's yes, called. Yes, a relief. There we go. Art history for the win? Uh... <laughs> This relief that's a depiction of these three women, like, kind of bundled together. And to me, they look like they were supposed to be, like, muses or some type of goddess or something. Like they look like, like they were on, like, a on either the entrance to, like, a funhouse or a carousel or something. Because this is all in Coney Island. Yeah, yeah. This is going on. Something like that. But anyway, their faces are real people faces, but they're painted to look like they're wood. And then they would, like, open their eyes and, like, say stuff, like sing to the music Uh and stuff and it was creepy Mm -hmm. but i don't i don't for whatever reason it didn't get to me like it did to you and and my sister because i remember as a kid it got to me and then i was just like oh this is gonna be weird i apologize in advance i mean it it definitely was weird (laughs) i apologize so much in advance for this movie (laughs) (laughs) anyways the newly forged party 
ease on down the road to meet the lion. We all know, no one will be surprised, everyone has seen some version of this story, we know that they're gonna meet the lion next. But a twist! Instead of coming to a forest, they ease on down to the local library, <laughs> where a stone lion statue is checking out the group. Bronze Man feels someone undressing him with their eyes and calls the party to a halt, voicing his concern about the supposed statue and its leering gaze. Dorothy dismisses Bronze Man's concerns, being like, Oh, it's just a statue made of stone, you know, dirt and water mixed together, left to harden, then chiseled into a desired shape. It was actually pretty funny, too, because you see the stone statue, and as they're walking by, the eyes open, and they're real eyes, and it follows them. Mm -hmm. And then when Bronze Man's like, wait, that statue, you know, it's looked at us, then the eyes, whoop, like, go back, and like, mm -hmm. but just the, the physical comedy displayed in that moment was, yes. was very on point. It was great. The lion, ha the lion has had enough of Dorothy Ross's dismissive attitude towards Bronze Man and breaks free of the confines of his elaborate stone costume. The lion sings about how he's a mean old lion and how fierce he is. Toto, however, read the book and is not having any of this pussy's shit. <laughs> Toto bites the lion, causing him to cry and whimper. The group takes turns calling the lion a coward. The lion f fills in the group about his tragic backstory and how he was exiled for being a squishy, sensitive ball sack. <laughs> the group is like, come with us, you hairy taint. <laughs> come with us to see the whiz and get some free shit. The lion is... The lion is like, I can't, I'm scared, and they sing some courage into her furry ass. The group of four jump on top of four different taxi cabs and sing about easing Don down the road. <laughs> they remember that there are four black people in New York and can't get a cab, so the party decides to ease on down to the subway instead. <laughs> What's funny is when I was in New York, I couldn't get a, ta a cab either, so your I mom. had to have my mom. Yeah, your mom had to flag down the taxi cab. <laughs> God, which I hear that stereotype, and I'm like, oh, that that can't be, like, surely people are not that terrible, and then it happens. I mean, you you have witnessed people following us in stores. <laughs> yeah. Being married to Kay has opened my eyes to a lot of shit that black people deal with that I didn't know existed because I'm mm -hmm. white. Yep. <laughs> so it's definitely been an eye-opening experience A being whole married. Whole new world. Whole A new world, world of stupid racist bullshit. shit. <laughs> we did not harmonize. I'll bleed from my eyes. <laughs> when I look at this whole new world of shit. I'll get to edit it later. <laughs> <laughs> the party waiting for the train to Emerald City to arrive, but instead, the party waiting for the train to Emerald City to arrive, but instead, we get a fucking what-the-fuck scene. <laughs> a crazy hobo character that was shown briefly in earlier scenes, but I have not mentioned until now, shows back up and comes down the subway stairs to freak the fuck out of our party of heroes. So, Kay. Yes. So, Kay, do you care to explain what this individual looks like and maybe some of the times that we had seen them earlier in the show that I did not cover? So, let's see. We have seen him right near the start when uh, Dorothy, right before Dorothy's going to see the Scarecrow. 
And he's this man who's got kind of like this almost a mask, but a hat and a little bit raggedy stuff. And he's holding a tray that has these two puppets hanging off of it. And as he walks, you've got the that he does. And then that's the first time. And then you see him again when uh, the... It's like every party meets up with the tin yeah, man. Yeah, every time they meet a new person, he yeah. shows up. And it's always briefly. It's always very brief, but it's enough to be like, who knows? So this is where he gets his big reveal, I guess, mm-hmm. more or less. So where we had the Kali does in the last version of the Wiz that we saw, we get this scene. <laughs> yes. The creepy hobo pulls... Uh, the creepy hobo, po- the hobo, hobo. Wow, my my tongue is rebelling against me. <laughs> the creepy hobo pulls two tiny paper lantern men out and inflates them to be larger than the average bear, and <laughs> and six them on our heroes who flee in fear. Like these, like if I say paper lantern, you probably have an image in your head of like, you know, this kind of rigid, ripply paper lantern mm-hmm. that's what these guys look like but they're all red humanoid shaped and he just sits there and like inflates them and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until they're like seven eight feet tall mm-hmm. and then they more murderous than the average bear. <laughs> yeah and then they chase the heroes in a very awkward manner uh this whole scene is fucking out of <laughs> out of control <laughs> This this scene is nuts. Yes, it is. This is the one scene when I was a kid that did give me a little bit of nightmares. So, the paper lantern men are chasing uh, the group. The lion flees like the cowardly fuck he is, leaving his newly made friends to certain death. Our group is now attacked by trash cans with teeth who try to eat the scarecrow. Loose wires that electrocute the bronze man and pillar people who attack Dorothy. The lion finds his balls and decides to try and save his friends, uh, try, to try and save the only friends he has, and succeeds. First, he frees McJackson from the trash can monsters. He then swipes at the cable snakes uh, to get them off of bronze man, and then he stops the pillar people from crushing Dorothy and Toto. It there was so much weirdness going on in this scene. The the trash can monster things actually kind of reminded me a little bit of like of uh Daleks or Daleks whatever they are from yeah. from Doctor Who like the way that they were moving they just look like these trash cans like moving on wheels except where you'd put the trash in was these maws mm-hmm. of big sharp teeth. And then the cables that were electrocuting the Tin Man, he was, like, just up against this wall, kind of like, holy shit, what's going on? And then these cables sneak down from the power box behind him or whatever and then just start electrocuting him. And then the pillar things, like, I call them pillar people, but I don't they know what else to call the them. pillars that Yeah, they came... just, just, like, the stone pillars in the subway, like, they start breaking free and then coming over and trying to crush people between two of them Mm -hmm. and lion gets in between those two it is like i'm sure that you've witnessed me when i'm uh throwing stuff away like when we're at fast food places how quickly i will make sure (laughs) 
Part of it is cleanliness, but another part of it is this scene. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's fair. it could be a mimic. Oh, yeah, seriously, that's what these things reminded me of were mimics. Yeah. And for people who don't know, mimics are a D&D oh. thing where it's a, a treasure chest. You think it's a treasure chest and you go to open it, but it's this big fucking monster that's in it and it tries to kill you. That's also one of the Oz books, The Magical Mimics of Oz. Anyway. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay then. They're bad guys. They, they, it, it's, it's a good book. It's a good book. The group bravely flees the subway to progress the plot. <laughs> As the group is walking down the street, they are propositioned by a legion of poppy prostitutes <laughs> who pollinate the faces of our heroes and make them fall asleep, and then they get thrown down a slide. So you're going to have to help me with this scene because I think I might have missed a part or two because first they're walking down the street and you see just this battalion of... <laughs> It's a fucking battalion. battalion of poppy prostitutes. It's like a hundred women, very scantily clad, all with these red poppy flowers in their hair. So you're, okay, this is the poppy field. Mm -hmm. You know, and... I can't remember if the guys were like, ooh, or not. But I remember Lion's the first one who gets It was Lion and face. Dorothy that, had, that move forward through it. And... Then, as they're going forward, the doors or the gates slam behind them, ah. at, at, behind uh, our party, and that's when the Tin Man and the Scarecrow are like, "No, it's a trap! It's a trap! Don't go that way! No!" And of course, they're not affected because one's made of straw, one or garbage, one's made of tin, bronze, and so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like in the book where only Dorothy and the Lion and Toto were affected by the poppies, um, but yeah, they dust them and i always thought that it was like a mix between a brothel and an opium den a little bit like huh? going that route especially because of the uh smoke that comes out of the that makes flower sense. that they send everyone into on the slide okay so it was the the poppy prostitutes that put them yes. in the slide. Yes. Okay, because I don't remember seeing that part. I just remember seeing them come down the slide. Yeah, they, they load them onto the scaffold and then raise the scaffold up to the slide and then they go down the slide. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, and there were some fun neon signs. Like one of them was like fruit, like something thighs. Like it was it was stuff that you could tell was trying to be like a little tongue-in-cheek sexy yeah but not also g-rated <laughs> yeah stuff that a child would read and not get yes but a parent would read and be like hee 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 yep anyway once the so the party gets separated and lion dorothy and toto are tossed into the slide the bronze man and scarecrow find their way to the party and Bronze Man cries on the lion's face to wake him up. And Lion curses the gods to make Dorothy wake up. Then Dorothy... Then Dorothy holds the sad lion and sings comfort to him. That scene was a little odd. Did I get that right, Kay? Mostly. Mostly. Because, like, Tin Man and Scarecrow find the passed out part, the rest of the party. And... Bronze Man is, like, crying over Lion. Wake up! Wake up, Lion! And his tears are dripping down and hitting Lion in the face. And he's like, ah, ah! And he wakes up. Mm -hmm. And then they can't wake up Dorothy. And so the Lion is, like, cursing the gods above and doing this big, huge uh, uh, 
monologue. Well, it's it's more that they realize that that would wake them up, so the Tin Man's working on Dorothy, and the lion just sees that Dorothy's out, and Toto's out, and that's when he does his whole, I failed you! Curse me! And it's this big Shakespearean Yeah, big Shakespearean thing. monologue. <laughs> and, very flowery. Very... Yeah. And then he tries to send himself back through the poppy slide, basically like, I don't deserve to live! And then they grab him and they're like, no, no, get get back mm. here. Ah. And like Dorothy's awake by that point and is like, no, it's fine, lion. And, and that's when she like holds him and is like singing to him about mm. how he's so brave. Yep. And, and it's like my favorite version of that because it, when you have this song in the original, it's after the uh, Kalidas and they are... Like, the Tin Man and the Scarecrow are kind of mocking the lion, and Dorothy's the one who comes to his aid. In this one, all three of them are trying to prop up the lion. Yeah. And it was, it's so well done, and so well acted, and so well sung, and the arrangement is a little different, because in the original, it's just a duet between Dorothy and the lion. In this, by the end of it, all of them are singing, like, cheering up the lion basically and <laughs> i remember it's... you saying that i love four-part harmonies yes yes i do i love them so much i'm a sucker for them if a show has it it automatically gets a check mark in its favor gets one bonus point mm -hmm. anyways the sun <laughs> is a big apple <laughs> In this crazy place. <laughs> like, after they have their four-part harmony, they're standing on, like, this rooftop, and they look across the, the divide, and they see the yellow brick road, which is apparently a bridge right now. It's over the Brooklyn Bridge. Over I the think. Brooklyn Bridge. I think you're right. Leading to the Emerald City. And the sun rises, and it's a fucking apple. <laughs> Because New York is the Big Apple. I hate that visual pun so, so much. Applesauce this fucking joke. Like, you were so funny when that happened. I was so mad about that. Yes, it was great. I don't know why that bothers me so much. Because when you're the one making the pun, it's okay. When someone else does it, it's not. <laughs> well, like, as the sun was rising, it wasn't a perfect sphere, and it looked like there was an arm sticking out of it, and I'm like, what the fuck is with the sun? And then as it, like, rises higher, it cools, and then you can see that it's just this big red apple in the sky, and I was just like, fuck you, movie. <laughs> Anyways, our group comes to the entrance of the Emerald City, and a grumpy Greenbeard man says they have to use the side entrance. But he notices Dorothy's silver shoes and is like, oh shit, never mind, and lets them in. The gang goes into the lobby of the Emerald Trade Center, and it, uh, <laughs> it appears we know the origin of the Blownado from Act 1, because these people are cocaine disco raving, singing about being green... And you gotta be green to be seen. You gotta be thinking green for this scene. Because if you want to be seen in this scene, you better be green. You've got to be seen green. Wouldn't be caught dead 
Red. Yeah. Oh, wait, never mind. The Wiz's disembodied voice comes out of over the Ozacom and says, Never mind! Until further notice, everything is red! The Wiz has spoken! We come back to the previously green scene where everything is now red! Because they'd never be caught dead wearing anything but red. And the cocaine disco scene continues. <laughs> but this time, with a busted blood vessel in your eye while you watch it... <laughs> The Wiz's disembodied voice chimes in once again and decides to show his court, to shower his court with a new color to cocaine dance to. Gold! Gold, Kay! Woohoo! Gold! There's gold in that there scene! Beautiful cocaine disco dancing gold! You have to be bold and wear gold! So, I've got a couple of things about this scene that, while it's crazy, I love it for some reasons. Hit me with them. First off, this is a nice nod to the book, because in the Wizard of Oz book, the only reason the Emerald City is green is because they're all wearing green glasses. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so in order to change the colors, they've got these lights that change, and then everything changes to red or green or gold. And so it's it's a cool touch there. And then... Um, Another thing that I really like in this scene are the microphone and the camera. <laughs> I'm going to... Okay, so I don't have a note about the camera. So go ahead and talk about that. So the camera is the first one that we get to see. And the camera is a walking camera. It's a walking human-sized <laughs> bipedal camera. Yeah, and like it will have a image of Dorothy, or like Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Lion and the Tin Man will be standing in front of the camera and the camera will just be like, uh-uh, and walk off. And then a couple of times it does like focus on them. And so it's, it's cool to see that. I like the use of that character as well as the mic. Those are two very Aussian type things. Like, inanimate objects that are moving around and kind have of free will yeah have free will and are huge and bipedal and so that is an Aussie that is an Aussie oh. thing like that's there are some touches in this that they do an they do a twist on it but it's still Aussie and then um you have the other stuff that I really like I love even though this is where I'm pretty sure all the money went I do like the costumes in that scene because they're just the costumes are good oh my gosh they're, they're very they're very um extravagant court apparel like things yes. that you would imagine people wearing to you know a royal ball or something like that to try and show off for the nobility and stuff like that yeah and when they when everything's gold they have this long ass piano that's just that they're all dancing on top of, and that part's really awesome. Um, and then eagle, or not eagle, owl-eared listeners and viewers of The Wiz would notice whose voice was the Wizard of Oz's voice. I did notice that. Yes. I did notice that. We'll talk about him we'll when we We'll talk about him when him. we get there, but yeah. Anyways, the gold cane dance scene continues for a bit. <laughs> gold cane. Before the Oz chimes in again to be like, send up that girl with the silver shoes. Dorothy Ross and her friends try to enter the Wiz Tower, but the Golden Guards are like, only the silver-footed one. <laughs> Dorothy is like, but we all want to talk to the Wiz. And the guard calls over Mike. He says, hey, Mike, 
and the walking microphone comes on over. <laughs> Dorothy speaks into it and is like, Yo, me and my friends have traveled far to see your whiz ass. And if you don't see us all, then you don't get to see me. Copacetic. <laughs> so... That's basically what happens. The Wiz is like, no, just you. And she's like, well, but my friends want to see you too. And if they can't come up, then I won't come up. And then he's like, fine. Yeah. And permits them all access. The Wiz caves to the demands of the young woman. And the gang goes up the elevator to see the Wiz. The Wiz speaks to the group through his proxy, a giant silver head, which spews fire and yells at them, who disturbs my slumber? Oh, Wrong movie. Uh, <laughs> the silver Oz head flashes between silver, green, and red as it's like, What do you want? What's in it for me? Give me your shoes. What? You won't? Go kill Eveline and I'll help you. Mm-hmm. So it does the, the typical Wizard of Oz thing. First it's like, What do you want? And then they're like, We want free shit, you know? <laughs> and then he's like, No. And they're like, But, but. And he goes, Okay, I've changed my mind. Well, first he says, give me your shoes. She's like, but I can't. Then go kill this witch. Yeah. Go kill the witch and then I'll grant your wishes for you. The party pees a little, then flees to the local motel. Rather than the group being like, we're not going to help you, Dorothy. We're just going to sit here and get drunk like they did in the stage Mm -hmm. version. They're they're like, we're all friends. We're going to help you fight that evil witch. Yep. The group goes down to the door guard and are like... Okay, we're going on a suicide mission to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. How do we get there? The guard pulls up a manhole cover and is like, It's a shitty walk to her kingdom. (laughs) Dorothy asks the logical question, How do we find her? To which the guard says, Don't worry about it. She'll find you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cool, cool. Nothing like going up a shitty creek... Nothing like going up a shit street towards an assassination attempt of a suicide mission without even the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the next scene is in Eveline's happy sweatshop kingdom, where everyone is suffering happily. Eveline comes in looking like a mix between the Queen of Hearts, Ursula, and a bejeweled Carmen Miranda. <laughs> Eveline does her I don't want any bad news song, and then is like, Go back to toiling and suffering in my factory of infinite joy and happiness. A fun touch is that at, as this scene is going on, or, or at the start of this scene before the musical number, you see the crows, some of the poppies, and our creepy collie man coming in, or being brought in, in chains, because they did not uh, succeed in stopping Dorothy. Yeah, so you had seen, I was... Because you were when you mentioned that before, you said that this never said, and I don't. Is it in the book that they are all mm-hmm. agents of the witch? Okay. Nope, that was a twist just for this. See, and I wondered if they were agents of the witch because she never says anything, or if she's just a rampant slaver and just has mm-hmm. happened to capture these people to add to her free labor factory. Her her line that she has basically being like. Uh, you know, they're on their way and none of you have stopped me, so I have to get the flying monkeys, kind of implies that she has been okay ever since Dorothy landed on her sister trying to kill Dorothy. <laughs> get those shoes. Mm-hmm. Man, women in their shoes, man. 
Anyway. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I can't find no fucking shoes in my size. <laughs> Eveline calls in her flying monkey soldiers, who are these cool-looking biker guys. The costume design for them is particularly cool. Um, these monkey guys, like, they... They're obviously on, like, bicycles, I think is what they're on. Mm -hmm. But the way that the costume is molded around them, they have, like, these big, huge silver wings that go down the length of the bicycle costume. And they look like exhaust pipes, but they're mm -hmm. formed to look like bird wings. Yeah. And the, the monkeys have, like, biker jackets and goggles and stuff like that. And their hands are, like, up front on the... Where would be the handlebars? Like, it's when you look at the costumes, you can see what went into them a bit. Yeah. But just the 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 spin on flying monkeys really just being like this biker gang yeah. was, a, was an interesting touch. And yes. it fit this world particularly well. It really did. Like, yeah. the changes that they make fit for the world. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the apple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fucking apple. <laughs> Everything else fits for this world. Um, one other costuming note I wanted to bring up was the uh, costumes of the Winkies, or rather the sweatshop workers, are these big, heavy masks that are just grotesque and exaggerated features and stuff like that. And I just want to put that in y'all's brains before we move on to the next note. Yes. Okay, so Eveline calls in her flying monkey soldiers. Um, Eveline sends them on her counter-assassination mission, minus <laughs> the assassination, as she wants Dorothy Ross, Mick Jackson, Bronze Man, and Puss in Boots, Puss, oh, sorry, Puss in No Boots, <laughs> and the dog Toto, taken alive. She tells them not to damage the silver slippers. And with that last objective specified, the biker gang is off to conduct some flying monkey business. The gang is ambushed by the biker monkeys, and everyone is captured. Inside Eveline's sweaty sh sweatshop factory throne room, Eveline is like, I'ma do bad stuff to your friends if you don't give me your shoes. Dorothy is like, I can't, they're magic. Eveline then proceeds to have her minions. Do you want to say something before I get in here? Before she has this happen, she tries to go for the shoes. With one of the most body oh, horror things. Yes, that's right. In initially, yeah, initially Dorothy's there and like Eveline goes to like reach down and touch the silver shoes and her hand curls backwards. Yep. So like if you just want to imagine like curling your fingers like you normally would if you were making a fist, but like reverse in the way that it would snap all the bones in yeah. your fingers. Yeah, it's fucked up it, it's it's yeah i watched that and my i made my hand go ooh like yeah uh i can't they're magic eveline then proceeds to have her minions buzzsaw mick jackson in half mm -hmm. crush the bronze man in a panini press and string the lion up by his tail dorothy is like Torture my friends all you want. <laughs> I'll never give up my magical slipper, my magical silver Prada slippers. And the whole time her friends are saying, don't give up the shoes. It's okay. We'll be fine. Just don't give up those shoes. Eveline is like, mustard or sauerkraut on your hot dog. And she has her minion take Toto over to the furnace. Toto was Toto was great, and he had the look on his face of, I know this is a movie, but I'm close to the fire. Yeah. And the, 
you know, the dog, the dog was fine. No harm came to the dog, but the dog did have this panicked look on its face as this guy's carrying this dog in one hand goes up a couple steps to this furnace, like opens it up and there's a roaring fire that comes out. Mm -hmm. And I want to say Toto is probably three to four feet away from the entrance. Yeah. But you could see him kind of turn and jerk and his eyes got wide. He was yeah. like, oh shit, this, what are you guys going to do to me? This just got real. Where's my agent? Yep. Uh... And that that's the most relatable thing for me is what Dorothy does. Like, you know, her dog gets threatened and that's what makes Dorothy go, oh. Dorothy is overcome by her inner white girl and is like, <laughs> and is like, no, don't hurt my dog. I can't, ha I can handle you torturing my friends, but don't hurt my dog. Dorothy gives in and begins to take off her shoes when McJackson points out the fire alarm. Dorothy, not knowing that the witch is weak, weakness to water, that the witch is weak to water, pulls the alarm, which sets off the sprinklers. Eveline screams in pain and anger, announcing to everyone that she's allergic to water. Eveline melts into her chair, and the back of her throne falls forward, revealing that her evil throne was a glorified porcelain throne. <laughs> Eveline is flushed away from the scene. To be fair, to be fair, if that had been Latte that was being threatened, I would have taken off those shoes and yeeted them. I'd have been like, nope, dogs, give me my dog. <laughs> you know what's something that I just thought of, though, is Dorothy's shoes obviously caused the witch pain. She kicked the shit out of the witch. <laughs> you know, that actually... <laughs> but no, I, that made me laugh, like, the whole... Because I had to think about that. I was like, well, if my dog is in danger... There'd be some dead people. Yeah, so. <laughs> there's a lot of things that I would do for our dogs, so. <laughs> the melted witch is flushed out of the scene, and the enslaved Winkies rejoice and dance at the murder of their slave master. The Winkies strip down to their undies and dance some more, asking if you can feel the brand new day. So, this is... That is very simplified on an amazing scene. <laughs> so, that's kind of why I knew you would want to talk about it, because I knew you really liked that scene, so I was like, I'll let Kay take it from here. So, yeah, the... Uh, so, before they even start the singing, um, as soon as Eveline is killed, then the... Winky's set to work to fix the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and take down the lion. And uh, as the water is falling from the uh, sprinklers. sprinklers, it's melting the sewing machines and it's melting all of the it's tools of the oppression. That's exactly what and, I was going to say. Beautiful. Yeah. And so, like, this scene... You have them first dancing, celebrating their freedom in these heavy, over-encumbered, exaggerated features costumes. And then the music shifts, and you have just this violin. I want to say it was a violin playing uh, with, like, uh, some other... Like, it, it was very stripped down at this point with the music. It wasn't as loud and exciting yet. And you see them start to unzip these giant costumes, revealing themselves. And as they're as they're coming out, they're looking at their arms. They're touching their skin for the first time, 
as free people. And it's like that scene alone <laughs> is worth the movie. Because <laughs> it's so heavily symbolic and it's so cool. And when they come out of it, like it's different body types of black people, different skin tones, different hair styles, like just the whole range. And it's all, they're all beautiful. And this is portrayed as all beautiful. And it's great to see that on the big screen and to, to see a moment like this celebrating being freed from this oppressive force and it just, uh, it's it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It is a good scene, because the music's good, the dancing's good, like, the whole, the whole, the whole, per, the whole scene is good. Like, it yes. is, and I, it made me laugh, too, when I was typing this up, and I was like, she's not gonna like the fact that it's so simplified, and I was like, yeah, but she's gonna want to talk oh, about it. Oh, so. God, because it is, it is my favorite fucking scene in this movie. <laughs> it, even as a little kid, this was my favorite scene, because... I, I knew enough to know what they were symbolizing and to be like, okay, that's what's, that's what's going on here. So yeah, yeah, I just had to gush about that scene. <laughs> the gang hitches a ride back to the Emerald City on the Flying Monkeys. Dorothy and the gang go back into the building to find that the Wiz's palace is empty. Nothing fancy. Nothing at all, except a severed silver head and a cot that is very obviously hiding someone underneath it. Real quick, I want to point out, that's also in the book, where the flying monkeys take him back. Yeah, I remember you so, saying that. Yeah. Which is cool. Point for the whiz. <laughs> Dorothy cuts right through the bullshit and rips the blanket off the cot, revealing a cowering Richard Pryor, who is the whiz. <laughs> the Richard, formerly known as the whiz, offers up his entire backstory to appease the angry mob who are ready to collect their reward from his soaking wet hide. <laughs> soaking wet because he peed because he's the whiz. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> or he fear whizzed, if you prefer. Dorothy fills in for the part of the whiz and alleviates the melancholy feelings of her friends, saying, McJackson, you're the smart one. Bronze Man, you're the caring one. Puss in No Boots, you're the brave one. She then sings to her friends to believe in themselves, as Mick Jackson points out that Dorothy Ross is trapped here without the whiz. The plot moves forward, and Glenda Horn, the Witch of the South, <laughs> who tells Dorothy she was so super-duper brave and that if she believes in herself, she can go home. I mean... I now know that she's the one who sent the blow NATO to abduct Dorothy in the first place. Everyone has been a pawn in Glenda Horn's sick, twisted game of good versus evil. Free choice is an illusion. We're all in the giant simulation. Reality is a lie. Reality is a lie. Reality is a Oh. God. Oh. I'm okay. I'm all right. Just still coming down from the cocaine tornado. Oh. My God. Fun fact, Lena Horne was Sidney Lumet's mother-in-law at the time. So. I thought it was funny when you said that in the beginning part that, oh, and he cast his mother-in-law as the good... I was like, wow, good good for her, I guess. And then, like, <laughs> Lena fucking Horne. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Take back everything you've said, because it's Lena fucking Horne. So, I do want to go back a little bit and talk about the Wiz. I, I like Richard Pryor. I thought he was really shitty in this. 
Like, no, uh, no, I agree. And it's, he, it's unfortunate because I think he is a good comedian and stuff like that. And there's movies I've seen him in that I, I thought he did a good job. Mm-hmm. He was not a good whiz. And I don't know if it was direction or what, because the whiz is this bumbling, cowardly fool who's like tripping over himself to explain the situation and, and mm-hmm. just all of this. It was just really not that good of a scene. Like, it's probably my least favorite reveal of the Wiz out of every version I've seen Mm -hmm. revealing the wizard to be just a person. Yeah. And he talks about that he was a politician Mm -hmm. and he was running for every office he possibly could, but nobody would elect him. Yep. And then, what was it? He, He... I can't remember why he took the hot air balloon. Uh, Because he was running as the dog catcher. And he (laughs) did a last-ditch effort to throw flyers from the hot air balloon. And then the hot air balloon went off course. Yeah, and then it took him to Oz. And Mm -hmm. the the normal thing, if he comes down the hot air balloon, they've never seen a hot air balloon before. So they're like, oh, you must be a wizard. Yeah. It's as quick as that to become a dictator, you know? Mm -hmm. And... No, his... his, The choice that they made with... Because... I'm I'm thinking it was probably a direction and writing choice to have him act the way he did. It wasn't a great choice. It really wasn't. It was definitely they, one of the weaker moments. They could moments. have still had Richard Pryor be the whiz and just make that scene a little better. Make it more like the scene with Queen Latifah, which is more in tune with the stage play. That's something they should have taken from the stage play. Yeah, her her performance as the Wiz was definitely better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just like doing the, you know, oh yeah, I'm a con man, not I'm shaking with fear and gonna piss myself. Yeah, he is. He is like, that's the thing, is like, you would think that he was the cowardly lion yeah. in the way he was behaving. And rather than, you know... When everybody's like, oh, well, we're not going to get our our reward. I'll never have a brain. I'll never have Mm -hmm. a heart. I'll never have courage. And rather than the whiz being like, oh, but you've had those things all along. It's Dorothy who jumps in and is like, oh, Mm -hmm. but you have this. You are this. You've been doing this the whole time. Yeah. Kind of thing. And while that, you know, that change isn't necessarily bad, it's just different I just am not thrilled with how yeah. disappointing Richard Pryor's yeah, that's, portrayal of the Wiz was. Yeah, because it could have been done better. It could have been done better. Like, you could have had a better portrayal of the Wiz and still had Dorothy be the dispenser mm-hmm. of positivity. Mm-hmm. Because I actually kind of liked that. I actually yeah. kind of liked her being like, going to, you know, Scarecrow was like, you do have a brain. You were the one coming up with all these good plans, you know. You know, br- you know Bronze Man, you are the... Though you do have a heart, you have been so caring and so loving. Yeah. And Lion, you do have courage. You've mm-hmm. been so brave. You know. Yeah. Like I do like that aspect of 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 the plot. But they they could have had Richard Pryor acted a little bit better because he was a good actor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I said, I've seen him in other movies and he yeah. did a good job. But this mm. maybe it was just a bad role, bad direction, whatever. But it just it just did not. I'll work. blame Joel Schumacher it again. It didn't jive. <laughs> Anyways, anyways, after Glenda Horn tells Dorothy that she's had the power inside of her all along, after Dorothy Ross bids a tearful goodbye to her friends, they sink into the dark, and Dorothy begins to sing about what home means to her. So, real quick, that was a really interesting part, because, like, Glenda comes out of nowhere, basically, to be like, I've been watching over you and not doing a damn thing, (laughs) you know? 
And when Dorothy is saying goodbye to her friends, oh, I'll miss you, oh, I'll miss you, I'll miss you, the room is already kind of dark, but then they just fucking disappear into yes. the darkness. Yes. It's like, yeah, and then it's just Dorothy. All you can see is Dorothy in this darkness with Glenda, and then Dorothy starts singing to the camera, and this, okay... This scene is beautiful, but kind of creepy. Yeah. As Dorothy locks eyes with the camera and cranks her performance up to 11, she sings about how these experiences have taught her how to love, how to be brave, how to face... Uh, and the faces of people from her home and from Oz are zooming around in the background. Dorothy finishes the song with a triple check of her... with a triple click of her heels and finds herself back in the middle of the blowstorm and <laughs> that she was stuck in at the beginning. Dorothy does a quick line before running back in her apartment. The end. So, but that scene, like, this this last part where Dorothy is, like, just... Like I said, she cranks her performance up to 11. This, if she had been at this level the whole movie maybe Diana Ross wouldn't have been one of the mistakes of casting the movie. Like, she... She... Her, the, this last slice of the movie is such a powerful performance, mm -hmm. and she has, like, tears in her eyes. Yes. And it is just emotional. It sounds beautiful. The imagery is a little creepy because, like, it's pretty close up on her face. I mean, her head isn't taking up the whole screen because you see... Images of her family members as well as people that they've encountered on their adventures, like, kind of um, ghostly, like, on either side of her head, mm -hmm. like, zooming back, you know, and, and, but, but just, I was not a fan of her staring into the camera and, like, yeah. looking right. I was like, this is a little unnerving. Oh, I have eye contact issues, so that's, uh, <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's disturbing in movies, I think, because... There's not supposed to be a camera, you know, mm -hmm. for the movie. Um, so, so I had mixed feelings about that scene because beautiful singing, uh, very emotional, mm -hmm. odd imagery, and then also staring into my soul and judging me. And and you can... That oh. was one thing that was wild, was watching her throat as she is singing. <laughs> yeah, like, it was close enough that you could see what ta what it takes to sing like Diana Ross. You, you just, like, she would sing and you'd watch, like, her throat tighten and stuff, and you just see all these muscles in mm -hmm. her throat working, and I'm just like, holy fuck. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, and then she clicks her heels, and, like, because the camera zooms in, shows her silver feet, she clicks her heels three times, and then, boom, like, she's... Back in New York, mm -hmm. there's snow all around her. Regular-ass shoes. Regular-ass shoes. She's got Toto in her arms and just walks right up to her apartment building and mm -hmm. the end. Yep. I forgot to mention, though, the cute little star babies that were around oh, Linda. Oh, yeah. Those babies were so cute. Do they serve a purpose or are they just there to be cute little babies? I think they were just there to be cute little babies because they're not quadlings. They're not... So... When Glenda Horn is, like, in the stars and, like... Because, like, the first time we see her is right after Dorothy gets sucked up by the cocaine tornado. Glenda Horn. Glenda Horn. Hey, there you go! Very nice. <laughs> Glenda Horn is holding the, the tornado in her hand and then she, like, blows it. And that's when Dorothy goes flying into Oz. Mm -hmm. And while we see her kind of among the stars, as Kay had said, there's these smaller star children around mm -hmm. her. Just these adorable little black kids and, and just, they're so cute. They were just cute. Want to pinch 
They were cute. And then we see them again when uh, Glinda Horn shows up to be mm-hmm. like, I'm here to save the day kind of thing. And you see the kids in the background. Mm-hmm. You don't see much of them, though. They're just kind of there to... They Some do of... a couple of close-ups on the cutest ones. <laughs> their, their faces made me laugh, though, because I don't know if they were just any cute kid of a relative on set because none of the kids seemed like they were actor children because no. <laughs> they all had these like awkward looks on their faces like why am i here like yeah how long do i have to sit still like they just yes. they had these looks very much of kind of like they just were checked out like they weren't mm-hmm. paying attention and just made, that made me laugh oh they were so cute though. they were cute though but yeah so this version very different mm-hmm. very very different but not not bad like real like objectively speaking really it's not bad it's got some odd choices uh some things that i don't necessarily care for mm-hmm. but it it hit some really high notes on yeah. some things like the the but like i said before i think the biggest thing for me that i didn't like was just the setting of new york mm-hmm. um and because the entire time we're watching it so many times i felt like we were watching uh Godspell. Godspell, yeah. There was one touch that I forgot to mention that at one point when they're doing when they're easing on down the road, they go past these piles of trash. And I I should have looked in to see if that was during one of the sanitation worker strikes or if they were oh. poking at that a little bit, because Oh maybe. You cause like that was a thing going on in the seventies in New York, like New York in the 70s was not New York of the now. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a very different, like, when when uh, when we were seeing Godspell, you know, you saw the miracle of having an entire street in New York City cleared. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah. New York's not that, and, like, especially during that time, it's not like that. And so it was, it was I think that... <clears throat> it both works to its favor and doesn't because some locales that they used do work, like the Emerald City one uh, where they had the World Trade Center. That worked. Um, I personally, like, even though it's really dark and dystopian, I actually really like the use of the New York Pavilion as Munchkinland since... It had just been under an oppressive ruler. I kind of liked that because it's like, oh, yeah, it the Munchkin land of the 1939 Oz, if they're being ruled by an evil witch, it shouldn't be all bright and happy. It should be a little bit dark and dreary because a good point. they've been oppressed for years. And yeah, that's also why I like the sweatshop scene for Eveline and... But then there are other things that don't work, like the Scarecrow's garbage patch <laughs> yeah. was a little weird. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess though it does kind of work because Scarecrow is in Munchkinland in the book. But <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's it's kind of I'm trying to think into myself like drawing comparisons between both versions of the Wiz, what I liked more, what I didn't like, you know, in other mm-hmm. ones, and it kind of hard is hard to compare because let's see. Almost 40 years apart. Yes. Almost 40 years apart. Mm-hmm. So practical effects are going to be better in the more recent one. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, too, is like... And the more recent one was on stage. Yeah. Which was, is a different beast of its own. Which is a different beast all of its own. But I'm like trying to think, because 
you know, all the performers did a really good job. I was mm. like trying to think which lion did I like more, which scarecrow did I like more, which Dorothy did I like more. I like Shanice Williams better as Dorothy. Agreed. Because, but... <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, Diana Ross can sing mm -hmm. and, you know, and they had to have Michael Jackson as the scarecrow. He did a really good yes. job. He's he's my favorite scarecrow of all it's it's all the ones I've seen. They're both good but for different reasons yeah. and in different ways. And it's Yeah, it's just I like both Wiz Scarecrow Scarecrows. I like both Wiz Scarecrows better than Ray Bolger. Okay. That's fair. Um but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else what much else I have to say cuz I liked it. It was weird had some things that I didn't like, but overall, I liked it. Yay! I'm I'm glad, because this is, even though, like, there's a lot of fun poked at this show, it is my favorite adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. You know, and I'm like, kind of... Like, The Wiz in general is, and then this one just holds a piece of my heart, because... A, I know we had the, uh, a stage revival of it recently, but I'm like, I think it's overdue for a new movie. Mm-hmm. It's overdue for I, movie. I need to see if I can find, because if I can find a version of The Wiz that's completely true to the original Broadway version, because the one that we saw did make some changes. If I can find one that is 100% off of the 1975 Broadway one, we are watching that. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> because, whew. Like, seriously, this is one of my favorite shows. It's good. As you can tell. And I definitely <laughs> like The Wiz better than the musical version of Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. um, just, I just think it's better. I think the music's better. It I really is. It's got more flair. It's not... Because I kind of think the other one's a little bit boring. Mm -hmm. Just kind of dry. Yeah. Like, it, it's... it's com it's in. I don't want to be too harsh. Like, it's perfectly... Adequate yes. is the way I want to describe it. But The Wiz is exceptional. It's yes. not adequate. It's exceptional. And like the, the one that we covered for the Patreon, that one is a stage adaptation of the 1939 Wizard of Oz, which are a little bit biased, but that stage adaptation was pretty friggin' awesome, even for what we had to work with. And that, like, when you think <laughs> about community theater, you're like, we did a good job with that shit. You did, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, talking about that one, like, we talked about it on our Patreon episode, but uh, with that one, like, it is more true to the 1939 mm -hmm. uh, Wizard of Oz, and it's, it's still a solid production. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything objectively bad about mm -hmm. it. It's one of those quote-unquote, you know, tried and true yes. versions to do. You know, kind of like yeah. very, just very formula formulaic. If you hit these mm -hmm. these things, you know, bam, 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 you'll have a, a decent musical. Yeah. But it's just, it wasn't, it's not The Wiz. The yeah. Wiz has so much more. The Wiz is so good. The Wiz has so much more energy to it. Yes. That I really like. Yes. And that's, that's one of those things like, <sighs> I mean, I'm sure that someday we could do an episode about the 1939 Wizard of Oz. I don't want to do it right now, but we some, might do some, it later. Some Wizard of Oz overload. Get some, well, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I found a thing. So, um, but I, I don't know. Like, the 1939 one, it just doesn't 
hit the same chord for me. And the only reason that I like the stage version of the 1939 version more than the 1939 version is because I've been in it. And because I have good memories about being in it. Otherwise, I probably would be like, eh, no, both, uh, both the stage and the movie version of the 1939 MGM-1 are meh. But... You know, because the stage version does make some changes that are better than the movie, that have a little bit more fun than the movie, but I don't know. I, I sit here and go, why why are we forcing everyone to watch only the 1939 version? Kids, kids should watch The Wiz. The only thing in the... Mandatory <laughs> elementary school now, do you mean, watching. Do you, mean, do you mean like The Wiz we just watched? Yes. The only issue I could see with that... <laughs> is the poppy prostitutes. I was eight, and I saw the poppy prostitutes, and I just didn't know what was going on. Fair. <laughs> Fair. I could just, I just know from my personal experience, I could see parents no, sometimes losing their it's shit. It's true. There, there would be, but... Scantily clad women dancing seductively in a kid's film? Eh, y'all see that in Disney films sometimes. Like, there's, mm. there's some Disney films that got away with some shit. Mm, that's true. Watch the Wiz. But Disney. Disney can do it. <sighs> Fucking Disney. The mouse has control. <laughs> Fuck you, Disney. <laughs> anyway. um, <laughs> So, are you ready to hear what we're covering next? I don't know. Am I? I found, through means, a uh, reimagining of The Wizard of Oz... I'm not going to say which means I found it through. You say reimagining, which gives me some concerns. It is a very popular reimagining of the story of Oz. Specifically, two characters that are very important to the Wizard of Oz. It is a little bit more based on the movie than the book. But I found a copy of Wicked. Oh, I have heard of Wicked. Yes. I do like Wicked. I do like that one. I've seen it live once because we got lucky on the West End and got some half price tickets. But, ah, yes. So I found a copy of The Wiz. So nice. The only thing I know... Oh, you mean Wicked? Wicked, yes, not well, The Wiz. The only thing I know about Wicked is it's supposed to be from the perspective of Eveline, right? Like it's, uh, in, in this, it's Alphaba. Alphaba. Yes. So is it Elphaba, and then she becomes evil, and then it's Eveline, she change her name? No, Eveline's just for the Wiz. Oh. Okay. Wizard of Oz, she doesn't have a name other than Wicked Witch of the West, and then for the for the Wiz, it was Eveline, and then for Wicked, it's Elphaba. Fucking okay. Yep. Sh sure. <sighs> okay, anyway. Yeah. But it's from the perspective of the Wicked Witch of the West, and it's supposed to make you be like, oh... She got screwed over, and that's why she's wicked. <laughs> yes, yes. And also, like, it's it's got some composers that I really like that worked on it and stuff. So, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Nice. So, next week, Wicked! Woo! So, thank you all for listening. Uh, we're hoping that you enjoyed this episode and all of our little Aussie and tangents and stuff. And if you want to contact KRI, you can find links to all of our social media stuffs at our 
website, which is ToneDeafMusical.com. We've got links to our uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as well as the Cast Junkie Discord server, where we have our own channel over there. You can pop in and say hi. It is rated not safe for work because of me. And only also, our channel. <laughs> yeah, we are the only channel that's not safe for work, so. Because theater. Theater is not safe for work. Oh, that's kind of true. <laughs> also, on uh, our website, we also have links if you want to support the show to our Patreon or our Kofi if you want to help with the upkeep and buying and hosting of such said musical theater stuff. Yep, and we also have links to our merch, our uh, Jello Cat shirts. And I'm going to try to get some more things designed in the coming weeks. We shall see. Maybe if we end up all being quarantined here in Utah, then I'll have plenty of time to work on merch. <laughs> yes, if our, especially if our uh, work business trip gets canceled. Yup. So that'll be it for this week. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been... might have been off key <laughs> oh i mean i'm sure i was i'm sure you sounded great i don't know i, I my nose does <laughs>